just one asteroid has more metals than humans have ever used in history and could last for millions of years. Welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. George Sowers, who is currently a professor of practice of space resources at the Colorado School of Mines. Dr. Sowers previously held the esteemed position of Chief Scientist and VP of Advanced Programs at United Launch Alliance. And in 2022, he was appointed to the Human Exploration and Operations Committee of the NASA Advisory Council. Thank you so much, George, for joining us today to delve into the exciting topic of space mining. It's my pleasure. So, George, you refer to water as the oil of space. And I read in one of your research papers that one of the first economically viable uses of space resources will be propellant from the lunar ice on the poles of the moon. In a congressional hearing, you said that we should view the poles of the moon as the next Persian Gulf. Can you elaborate on why water is the oil of space? So one of the great discoveries of planetary science in the last couple of decades is that water is ubiquitous in the inner solar system. Water exists at the poles of Mercury. Water exists on Mars. Water is chemically bound into the rocks of many asteroids. But most importantly, we now know that there's water at the poles of the moon. And water exists in what are called permanently shadowed regions, which are very cold crater bottoms at the poles of the moon that have not seen sunlight for billions of years. We confirmed that there was water there with a mission back in 2009 that actually was launched by United Launch Alliance. It was the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and it had a secondary payload on it called LCROSS. And so what LCROSS did was it guided the upper stage of the rocket, the Centaur upper stage, into an impact trajectory into the Cabeus crater near the south pole of the moon. And just before impact, the LCROSS spacecraft separated from the upper stage, and it had instruments on it that was able to interrogate the ejecta plume that was created by the impact and confirm that there was roughly 5% water by weight. Water is really important for space development for a number of reasons. It's obviously essential for life. We humans need it to survive. You need it for agriculture. Water also makes a, a really good radiation shielding, which is important once we get outside the Earth's magnetic field. But most importantly for space development, you can separate water into its hydrogen and oxygen constituents and then if you liquefy those things, you have rocket propellant. In fact, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen is the most efficient chemical propellant known. Therefore, this, the phrase water is the oil of space. Water equals rocket propellant. I was reading a paper that said that an asteroid that's only 30 meters long, which is about 100 feet, is estimated to contain $30 billion worth of the platinum group metals. And it's a multiple trillion dollar a year economy once it's actually developed. How much is the space economy worth specifically with regards to mining? And do you think that an asteroid that's 30 meters long could be worth almost $100 billion? Yeah, I've done my own calculations on the growth of the space economy. You have to try and understand what are the elements of that economy. Mention one item that has 
received a fair amount of attention in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. And that's the notion that you could go exploit certain classes of asteroids per metals. Certain types of asteroids are called metallic asteroids or they have the name M-type for metallic. And and yeah, if you know those asteroids are really dense, they contain a lot of metals. And yeah, if you could magically bring those metals back and introduce them at market prices on the earth, then you can come up with numbers like you cited. But those are all huge caveats. In my opinion right now, it's not really economically viable to bring metals back to earth from asteroids. People are still looking at it and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I, I just don't think that the economics pan out for the time being. I think water as propellant is more of a near-term economic opportunity. And this is the idea that that space resources, at least at first, are going to be utilized in space. They're going to be utilized to offset mass that otherwise would have to be launched from Earth. And that's where you get the real economic leverage. <laughs> Launching things from Earth is, is super expensive. And if you can find materials in space that enables you not to have to launch from Earth, then you get a really big economic benefit. So is the goal basically to use the moon as a gas station, so to speak, up there and just kind of a, a base for those operations? Or do you not see the moon as a gas station? No, that's a really good analogy. If we have a source of propellant on the moon, then that would lower the cost to do almost everything that we want to do beyond low Earth orbit in space. Just for example, if we can utilize lunar propellant and refuel just one time going from Earth to the surface of the moon, then you can save a factor of three. So in other words, the cost per kilogram to land mass on the surface of the moon is reduced to a third if you can refuel just one time uh, on the way from Earth to the moon using lunar propellant. NASA's Artemis missions you know, anything we want to do beyond low Earth orbit is made dramatically lower cost. That's kind of the near-term economic benefit. It reduces the cost of space exploration. And hence, it would reduce the cost of space development. If we want to have a permanent presence on the moon, developing lunar propellants or propellant from asteroids is an essential first step because it just makes everything cheaper. What's the regulatory issues? It, it seems like when I started researching the topic, most of the articles I found actually were about the regulation and the laws. And there's been, what, five or so space treaties since the Outer Space Treaty was signed in 1967 that over 100 countries signed. America in 2015, they created a regulation saying that Americans can do space activity and, and kind of monetize, but that's only one country. What is the regulation? What's the governing body up there? Can anyone just build a rocket and go up there and start mining? Well, the space, if they. Yeah, that's a good question. Right now, it's a blank sheet of paper. You mentioned the Outer Space Treaty. The Outer Space Treaty says very little about space resources. The one clause in there that people refer to is that the Outer Space Treaty prohibits nations from claiming territory in space as their own sovereign territory. So the United States can't claim the moon as U.S. territory. It doesn't say anything about property rights or 
private companies developing materials in space. And you also referred to that 2015 uh, Commercial Space Launch Act that grant property rights to U.S. persons for space resources and materials that are extracted in space. So if you go to the moon and extract water, you can own the water if you're a U.S. person. So U.S. took the lead back in 2015. Luxembourg, of all countries, tiny country in Europe, has followed suit and has a similar law. And then Japan and the United Arab Emirates have also followed suit. Slowly, countries that are interested in space mining and space resources are putting in regimes like the U.S. has, which says you have property rights in space. More recently, again, with U.S. lead, there are these things called the Artemis Accords. And the Artemis Accords are not really binding and they're not that specific, but one of the elements of the Artemis Accords does promote the use of space resources. It doesn't get into the details of exactly how you do it and what the regulatory regimes are, but I think they're now, and I, I don't know the exact number, but there are several dozen countries that have signed on to the Artemis Accords. And what that does is basically promote cooperative activity in developing the moon and lunar space. So we're kind of getting there. You know, there hasn't really been a forcing function. Nobody's quite ready to, to mine the moon yet. You know, it's not that far in the future. Uh, one thing that, that NASA did um, a couple of years ago that sets a precedent is that NASA put out a solicitation and offered to buy anywhere between, I think it was 50 grams to 500 grams of regolith on the surface of the moon. And several companies bid on that, and it's likely that deal will be consummated sometime in the next couple of years. But what that would set is a precedence for taking regolith, which is just the fancy word from lunar soil, lunar dirt, and transferring ownership between a company and NASA. So again, it, it demonstrates and sets a precedence for transference of ownership of extracted materials. And that should happen soon. And so property rights is kind of the first foundation. You know, you can own it, you can transfer rights to someone else, you can sell it, process it. What's currently missing is any sort of mining claim regime. So how do I stake a claim to some patch of icy soil in a dark crater on the moon? Right now, nobody knows how to do that. You know, it's well established on Earth. I'm here in Colorado. If I wanted to go stake a mining claim, I you know, found some gold up in the hills. There are Colorado laws and U.S. laws that tell you exactly how you got to go do that. And similarly, if you want to have oil leases, there's well-established legal regimes for how you go do that. Now, that doesn't exist in space. The first treaty, let me mention before, was signed in 1967, which was more focused on, at that time, the Cold War and nuclear war, and they didn't want space militarized, so they never even thought about the commercialization. Maybe the best uh, analogy here on Earth to space would be the seafloor. And in 1982, the UN passed the Seafloor Treaty, which says that it's basically global. Anyone can, of course, go to the bottom of the seafloor and mine it, minus certain areas where it's close to another country. But no one's really mining the seafloor because it's just not really feasible. I mean, is it actually 
more feasible to mine space than, say, the bottom of the ocean floor? One of the reasons that people aren't mining the seabed is that treaty you refer to. It's a pretty onerous regime, you know, requires a lot of international approvals to go do it. Those of us that want to promote space mining look to that seafloor treaty as that's exactly the wrong way to do it. You want a regime that actually encourages people to take risk and mine, not have to go get approval from a dozen different international regulatory bodies. And then I don't know, I'm not that familiar with the particulars of the seafloor treaty, but I think there is some regime where you have to donate some of your profits back. And there's kind of two sides of the debate about space mining from a regulatory standpoint. There's the school of thought that space is a global commons, and therefore whoever mines things in space needs to pay some sort of a global tax. There have been a number of academic papers that are written that promote that idea. To me, I'm vehemently opposed to that. That's sort of the socialist way of going about it, that it's owned by everybody and therefore nobody owns it. And if everybody owns it, then nobody's going to take the risk to go develop it. I'm a very devout capitalist. I believe in the free market and the free market incentives is the way to develop it. If you're going to take the risk, you should get the reward. I think that's the direction that the U.S. is going and these other countries I mentioned. That's the direction of the Artemis Accords. If it's ever going to happen, that's the way it's going to have to happen. Is one of the reasons for the impetus to actually do space mining is just because of all the regulations here on planet Earth. Like in the U.S., there's mines that have been trying to get permits for years, in some case decades. Then, of course, what do you do with the waste product and disposing it? If you're mining an asteroid, are you just going to basically drill down to the metals and then everything else floats off in space? You don't actually have to worry about any of the waste product? How would this work? And do you think that there's just too many regulations on Earth, so it's just easier to mine in space at a certain point? The difficulties mining in space are technological and logistical. We don't know what the regulatory impediments are going to be yet because they don't exist. But you're absolutely right that it's getting harder and harder and harder to develop Earth resources. There's a lot of forces against it. And that kind of gets to the bigger picture reasons for developing space resources. You think about just the resources in the inner solar system are nearly infinite when compared to those available on Earth. Just one example, the power output of the sun is 10 trillion times the power usage of all of humankind right now. So we're tapping into only a tiny, tiny fraction of the energy that's available just from the sun. Uh, you mentioned asteroids. There's an asteroid in the main asteroid belt called Psyche, and NASA's got a mission to go to it that's going to launch in the next a year or two. Psyche is a metallic asteroid that contains enough metals to last humans for millions of years at our current consumption rate. Just one asteroid. The resources in space are nearly infinite. And if we can bring those resources within the economic sphere of humans then you can imagine a future that's without scarcity. You know, a more concrete example is space solar power. If we can build satellites in geosynchronous orbits that collect sunlight and beam that energy back to Earth, then 
you now have an inable energy source that's appropriate for base load because you don't have night and you don't have weather and space to block the sun, unlike solar energy on Earth. Solar energy on Earth has a lot of drawbacks. It doesn't generate power at night. It doesn't generate power very well when it's cloudy. If you get your solar panels covered with snow, they don't work. There's just all these things, you know, it consumes a lot of land and it consumes a lot of the mineral products that, again, now ties back to the problems that you just mentioned about mining on Earth. So there's all sorts of issues with solar on terrestrial solar. All those issues go away when you collect your solar energy in space. And if you can make your solar power satellites out of lunar materials, then the impact to Earth has been obviated. There's no impact to Earth from mining on the moon. There's no impact to Earth from collecting sunlight in space. There's no negative impact to Earth by beaming it down to Earth in the form of diffuse microwaves. And then the infrastructure you need on Earth to receive that energy is much less intrusive than, say, a solar farm or a wind farm. It's just a grid of wires that you could put on poles over a cornfield. George, what are some of the timelines for some of these things? I think when most people think of space mining, they probably think of the 1009 movie Avatar, where they were mining a, a, what, a different planet called Pandora or whatever. For most people, they think this stuff is science fiction. What is the timeline? I've been reading articles. I go back probably 100 years talking about using microwaves in space to send down that solar energy. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of these ideas uh, have been talked about a long time. Like we talked about earlier, probably the first domino to fall is going to be mining the moon for water ice or asteroids. A lot of asteroids are what are called C-type asteroids. For example, the one just came back in the last couple of days from Bennu with the emission OSIRIS-REx. Many of those asteroids have hydrated minerals or have abundant hydrated minerals which means there's water chemically bound into the rocks, and you can heat those rocks up and extract the water. So it's not just the moon, but some of these near-Earth asteroids also contain water that can be used. So developing that water-based economy in space is, is the first step. By doing that, and then, then we have dramatically lowered the cost of all space activities. And in particular, we can start developing other lunar resources. Uh, the, the lunar regolith, the dirt, is very rich in metals. Uh, it's almost entirely composed of metal oxides, which is metals chemically bound to oxygen. A lot of current research is on how to extract those metals and the oxygen as well, because oxygen is one of the main components of rocket fuel. And then... Obviously, metals are very important for lots of manufacturing purposes. One of the elements that's abundant on the moon is silica. And silica is one of the main components of solar panels. And so you can start thinking about mining the materials of the moon and transporting that material into space to be used for manufacturing these large-scale solar power satellites. But anyway, back to the timeline, water mining on the moon, we could easily see, you know, industrial scale production in 10 years if we really wanted to. The technologies to do that, to mine water, extract water, and process that water into hydrogen and oxygen propellants 
is not exotic. It's really straightforward. You know, to extract water out of the lunar soils, all you got to do is heat it up to where it sublimates. And it's in a vacuum. And that doesn't require all that much energy at all. And then electrolysis is, is the very well-known process that you use to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen. Every school kid did an electrolysis experiment in class. So all that is very well understood, not exotic. The real stumbling block is just doing the exploration. It's getting into these dark craters and characterizing the ice deposits, locating them and characterizing them. How rich are they? Are they really economically viable? Understanding the geological properties. Is this hard material? Is it like concrete or is it just like loose dirt? Everybody's got an opinion on that, but nobody really knows. You think in the next 10 years and so by 2033, we'll be on the moon? We could be. The first step is, is, like I was just mentioning, is that exploration. We need to send exploratory rovers into these dark craters and find out. NASA actually has a mission which will demonstrate this capability. It's not going into the really dark craters where we think the water ice is most abundant. But it is going into a permanently shadowed region, a more shallow one, that may or may not have water. But it's a mission called Viper, and it's going to launch in the next few years. And it's a rover that has the capability to drive into one of these permanently shadowed regions and stay for about eight hours. It's a solar-powered rover, so once it gets in the dark, it's on battery power, which is why it could only be there for about eight hours. But it's equipped with a drill and other measuring apparatus that is specifically designed to uh, detect ice in the shallow subsurface. So that'll be kind of a first step. But then what we really need to do is send similar type of rovers and exploration vehicles into these really deep permanently shadowed regions and do long-term mapping of, of the ice resources. For the, the average person, the two most common companies they know that do space stuff would be Elon Musk company, SpaceX, and then Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin. What are some of the companies that are actually leading the charge for space ex- exploration and space mining? You mentioned two of the obvious ones. SpaceX is pushing on some of the aspects of this refueling economy, as I like to call it. Their Starship vehicle that's going to go to the moon and land on the moon is explicitly designed to be refueled. That's kind of an essential first step, right? You have to have your vehicles designed to be refueled. The Apollo vehicles were not. All of the fuel they needed to go to the moon and come back had to be taken with them from Earth. And that's why they were so enormous. But Starship is very capable because it can be refueled. And right now, SpaceX is planning to refuel their vehicles with propellant launched from Earth, which is a good first step, but there's no reason why their vehicles couldn't be refueled with propellants that were mined and processed in space. So that's a really big first step. Blue Origin is also designing their vehicles to be refuelable. They don't make a lot of hay about it, but they have a whole division at Blue that is devoted to what's called 
space resource utilization. And I think they did have a press release. It was about six months ago that talked about work they had done to produce solar panels out of lunar materials. So they're definitely very interested in all of this and are actively researching and and developing technology to do it. NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate is putting a lot of time and effort into developing technologies for space resources and various other kind of surface systems for the moon. There's a whole consortium of businesses, large and small, that are participating with NASA in that. Now, just here in Colorado, there are a number of small, medium-sized businesses that are pursuing various aspects of space resources. There's a company called Orbit Fab that is pursuing the business of distributing and refueling in space. They have propellant tankers that will deliver propellant to spacecraft. It's kind of shocking to think, but every spacecraft that humans have ever launched up to now have not had the capability to be refueled. So they're basically out of life when they run out of gas. And a lot of these very expensive satellites in geosynchronous orbit then have to get moved to a disposal belt. So they have to save enough propellant to move themselves into a disposal orbit, and then they're dead. So one of the real near-term uses that helps us get on the road to space resource utilization is simply refueling satellites. Imagine if you can refuel a commercial communication satellite for a million or two dollars, get an extra one or two years of life out of it, and the typical annual revenue from a commercial communication satellite is one to $200 million per year. So that's a pretty easy business case to make, right? Pay to have somebody bring fuel to me, refuel me, and then I get another couple of years of life. In order to do that, your satellites have to be designed to be refueled. Satellites historically don't have that gas gap you can unscrew and put the gasos in. But now they're starting to be designed that way. Most satellite companies, their future satellite vehicles are designed to be refueled. So, like I said, there's a company called OrbitFab that wants to be the sort of the gas station in Earth orbit. I did a project with another local company called Lunar Outpost, where we developed, and this was actually for the U.S. Space Force, we developed an architecture for a fuel depot that would be located at one of the Earth-Moon Lagrange points, in particular the first Lagrange point. You can kind of think of it as the point in between the Earth and the Moon where the gravity from the Earth balances the gravity from the Moon. So you can kind of park there and stay in the same place roughly. Then turns out that's a great place to put a gas station in the future. So we developed that architecture and came up with a development plan for how it would get deployed. We're working with Space Force to see what the next steps are. So there's a lot of active development. And that's sort of the infrastructure that you need, you know, how to distribute and store this propellant that you kind of need to have in place before you establish your lunar mines. I was at a, a party maybe a year ago, and the guy there owned like a space mining company. He was talking about how 
like if they mine the moon then they change the mass too much then it would affect the tides on earth and he was just talking about some of the the complications and the unknowns and the unintended consequences like could we have our tides messed up on earth if we're messing around with the moon not in our lifetimes no man the, the moon is really really big and the amount of mass that humans would extract is teeny tiny compared to anything that it would take to actually affect the tides at all. Maybe in a thousand years, if we can completely dismantle the moon or something like that, but nobody's contemplating that. As space economy develops, the lunar materials are probably going to be used mostly to build out lunar surface infrastructure. And not that much lunar mass is going to be exported off the lunar surface. If you look that far out, probably near-Earth asteroids are going to be a better source for that kind of raw material. So what are some of the biggest challenges that are faced when trying to mine in space, whether it's the moon or an asteroid or a comet? The challenges vary between those different kind of objects. One of the major challenges that you face right off the bat is just operating in the space environment. You're outside of the Earth's atmosphere, outside of the Earth's magnetic field, uh, so you have to deal with very high radiation levels. So you have to design your equipment to be resilient to that. You're operating in a vacuum. If you're mining on the moon, you have to deal with the fact that the gravity is less. So mining techniques that would be used on the moon that take advantage of the high mass of mining equipment, those techniques have to be modified or changed to deal with the fact that you, you can't you know, rely on the weight of your vehicles. So you have to adapt what works on Earth to work in space. Asteroids are even harder from that as aspect because they essentially have zero gravity, almost no gravity at all. But you have to figure out how to anchor yourself to it and what sort of techniques you can use to extract the material in that low-G environment. There's been a lot of work on that, and certainly those are challenges that can be overcome. So a lot of it is just the logistics of getting there. Launching things into space is really expensive. And the OSIRIS-REx mission that went to Bennu and came back, brought material back, that mission cost the U.S. taxpayers somewhere between half a billion and to a billion dollars. Space is expensive. That's one of the reasons why I've been focused in my own research on developing propellant resources is because that transportation costs can be dramatically reduced. What are the main metals and minerals that would be mined in space? I was reading some articles that were talking about helium-3 is fairly abundant, and then, of course, the platinum groups that we talked about earlier. But is there gold up there, or do they not even know? In metallic asteroids, you have various platinum group metals, including gold. One, one of the differences in asteroids in the moon is that you haven't had the sort of geologic processes that you have on Earth through plate tectonics and all that that have melted and aggregated things like gold into veins and highly concentrated deposits, those processes don't exist on the moon. They have existed on Mars to a lesser extent than on Earth. The geology of how things are situated are different in space. These metallic asteroids are really highly concentrated metals Nickel, iron, the platinum group metals, including gold, 
so yeah, finding some of those, like I said, just one asteroid like Psyche has more metals than humans have ever used in human history and could last humans for millions of years. On the moon, you've got lots of different kind of metals, but they are chemically bound in, in the oxides. You have titanium, aluminum, iron, in quite abundance, silica in abundance, magnesium. There's rare earth elements on the moon, which are essential for electronics manufacturing and other uses. You mentioned helium-3. That's kind of an intriguing one. It does exist on the moon and the surface of the moon. It's been implanted by the solar wind. And helium-3, which is an isotope of helium, is intriguing because it could be a very lucrative fuel for fusion. Right now, you know, the research on fusion is with the hydrogen isotopes. But helium-3 is an isotope, if you can get fusion to work, creates energy without any nuclear byproducts. And that's one reason why people are interested in it, because it's a completely clean nuclear fuel. And one of the things that, that people don't like about nuclear power is it generates waste that you have to store somehow. Helium-3 fusion doesn't create any waste, nuclear waste. But you need to get that fusion technology to work in the first place. And secondly, there is helium-3 on the moon, but it's not, it's measured in parts per billion in the lunar regolith. There's data from the Apollo missions that show that it could be maybe 40 to 60 parts per billion. So you need to mine a lot of regolith to get usable quantities of helium-3. It can be done. We at Colorado School of Mines have done some research on that. And there are companies out there that are pursuing that as a business. The Apollo astronaut Jack Schmidt wrote a whole book on it. You said that one asteroid could have more metals than everything that's ever been mined on Earth. Let's say hypothetically that one of these private companies found an asteroid that had $100 trillion worth of gold. Couldn't they just single-handedly crash the economy of many countries in the world and they'd flood the market and then would gold be worthless? How like, Would they have to... I mean, that's one of the things you have to think about, right? It's You don't want to just dump enormous quantities of, of precious metals into the market because then you'll crash the price, right? And so it's now not worth much. Um, platinum group metals are expensive because they're rare. So there's that, right? Uh, so as a business, you, you wouldn't want to do that. What you'd want to do is you'd want to do like De Beers does with diamonds is that you dump a little bit into the market at a time so that you can make money without crashing the price. Right. And, and Canada does the same thing with the, the maple syrup, right? They got a maple syrup cartel to uh, Canada to make sure they don't flood the market with maple syrup and drop those prices down. I guess they do know how to do, do this. When do you think all mining on Earth then will basically stop? And then we'll just be, be mining in space. We'll have solar energy being beamed down from space to Earth. Is this going to happen in, by 2100 or 2050? Certainly, I think we'll be well on our way by 2100. I think space solar power is feasible. It's feasible now. It's just not economically viable. And there are tech demos that have, that are underway and have been planned. You know, China's putting a lot of money into it. U.S. not so much, which I'm a little sad about. I, I wish we would 
focus more on that. If you think about how to go to net zero, that's a way to go to net zero without bombing our economy back to the Stone Age, which is what some people want to do. It's a way to generate energy without using fossil fuels that does have the ability to reach the scale that could replace fossil fuels, whereas terrestrial solar and wind do not. There's no way to get to net zero with terrestrial solar and wind. It's just it's not feasible from a physics and engineering standpoint. So I wish there would be more. You could launch a solar power satellite very soon. The technology, again, is not exotic. We know how to collect solar energy in space. Every satellite does it today. We know how to beam power with microwaves. We know how to receive it. We know how to steer the beams. All that technology exists. So it's just a matter of integrating it and getting it up there. The cost to launch those kind of satellites from Earth currently doesn't make it competitive as an energy source with fossil fuels. But if you can make your satellites with lunar materials, then it will become cost competitive. The only thing preventing or holding up that right now is basically just the economics of it. Right. But technically that's feasible. People want to talk about all this wind and they're building all these wind turbines offshore and those things are highly expensive though too and they're not really that effective it seems like in the long run it's way way cheaper just to do something that work china agrees with you they have a space solar program and i don't remember the timelines but they've published a public timeline on when they think they're going to have the first operational space solar power satellites japan has done some work on it europe is starting to get really interested in it I had some conversations with some folks in the British government, and the UK now has a program. I started out with low dollars, but they now have a government-funded program on space solar power. The European Space Agency also has started to invest in space solar power. The US is the ones that are lagging. There is some money being invested, but it's the military side, not the civil side on the, in the US. It's working on it. So what country do you think will be the leader then, say, in 10, 20 years? You think it'll be China is going to be the leader? Right now, it's China. I keep, I keep pushing on our politicals in this country that we really need to figure out how to get a no-fooling space solar power program going. It seems like there'd be a lot of national security risks if you have China as the leader. I would imagine if they can dominate it commercially, they could also militarize it. Yeah. So our Space Force, they have their eye on that ball in terms of protecting our assets in space. What we aren't doing is investing in the technology, you know, would lead to space solar power. But hopefully that'll change in the coming years and decades. In 2022, you were appointed to a NASA advisory council. What do you actually talk about with NASA? What are some of the topics that you engage in with NASA that they want your expertise on? The NASA advisory council, it's congressionally chartered advisory group for NASA to advise the NASA administrator and his senior leadership team. I'm on a subcommittee that focuses on human exploration and space operations. Basically, we meet a couple times a year and we get presentations from the various NASA organizational elements about the, the status and progress of the various programs, and then we provide advice. So it's basically an advisory group. If we think there are things that NASA could do better, we tell them. If we think there are things that NASA's not doing quite right, we tell them that. 
it's all public. Every meeting is public. All the minutes of the meetings are published and public. You can go to NASA's website or just Google NASA Advisory Council, and you can find all the presentations and all the meeting minutes and all of the formal recommendations that have been provided by the council. Last time I looked, I think a half of Americans think that the moon landing was a hoax in 1969. And then you get people that they don't even think we ever went to the moon. Just what would your response be to one of these people that says the whole moon landing was a hoax? There are a lot of people in this world that believe weird things. I don't worry too much about it. There are not many of those kind of people. You really have to believe a lot of very complicated and elaborate things. We watched the Apollo launches, right? We saw the giant rockets go up. The whole thing was videoed. We have videos of humans on the moon. We have images of standing on the moon, looking back at Earth. How do you fake that? There's no way to fake that. And we have the samples that were brought back. We can look at the samples, and the samples geologically are nothing like you could ever find on Earth. You can't fake that stuff. If you look at soils on Earth, you will see the direct evidence of weathering, whether it be water or wind. Rocks are deposited over hundreds of millions of years, and you can see the grains of sand that are rounded because of wave action in sandstones. The lunar materials show no evidence of Earth-like weathering. They have space weathering. The materials that you bring back from the moon, if you look at the grains of soil, are super jagged because they're formed by, originally it was basically lava, basalt, that was then over billions of years impacted by meteors, micrometeors, and it's been shattered and shattered and reset shattered and, and slightly melted. Those kinds of evidence, you can't get that on Earth. The, the evidence is just overwhelming. It, it's not fake. Back to space mining, would it actually be more automated or would there just be a lot of people up there actually running machines? All of the architectures that I've developed are fully automated. There would be human intervention. One of the options for the moon, at least, is you can teleoperate. Just like people can be sitting in rooms at an Air Force base in Nevada operating a drone in the Middle East. Same kind of concept. You can be operating robots on the moon from Earth. There's a little bit of a lag, but it's not insurmountable. No, you can't do that on Mars, obviously, because the, the travel lag for the signals is way too much. Even better if you have people on a lunar base operating robots that are doing the mining operations then your lag becomes almost nothing. How big is the space industry going to be? Is there going to be thousands of companies and tens of thousands of people working or more? I mean, you're going to have a million people in your RDR. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So how big is it right now? Then how big will it, it be? Yeah. I mean, the, the space economy it has been growing at a pretty constant rate. I'm trying to remember the numbers, something like somewhere between five and 10% per year. It's going to just keep growing. There'll be some inflection points. Once once we get lunar propellant developed, then the barriers of entry to new space businesses will be dropped su substantially. And so it'll be an inflection point where the growth rate will increase. And then once we really start having people in space, doing things in space, 
then there'll be even more inflection points and the growth rates will jump again. So what are the biggest investment opportunities, say the next 10 years for investors that are looking at this space? Uh, there, there, there are lots of them all over the place. The space economy is going to grow from Earth orbit outward. So the near-term investment opportunities are in Earth orbit. The companies that are making money in space are doing comm. Everybody's probably familiar with Elon Musk that's providing internet around the world. You can't really invest in SpaceX unless you become employed by them. <laughs> right now, it's not a public company. And similarly with Blue Origin, they're not public yet. But there are a lot of smaller companies that are getting involved in that kind of stuff. The big aerospace companies that are public, like Boeing and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman, and those companies are getting involved in this as well. But I mentioned some of the smaller companies like Orbit Fab. There's a local company called Lunar Outpost that are building lunar rovers. A lot of small and medium-sized businesses are getting involved in space in various forms. Now, some of the space mining stuff, you got to view that if you're an investor, is pretty risky. So I would look for the government to help de-risk that somewhat. I mentioned exploring for these materials. So I think it's appropriate for governments to do some of that early exploration and prove it. Once those risk levels start coming down, private companies will be more attracted to it. You said that the U.S. really wasn't putting in a whole lot of money into these programs. Why is that? I just mentioned that in the context of space solar power. The U.S. is putting a lot of money into lunar exploration through the NASA's Artemis program. That is going to bring a lot of companies along in its coattails. So they're more focused on exploring the moon than they are in some of the other activities in space then? Yeah, that's NASA's charter. They're an exploration agency. They're really not chartered to do economic development. And that's one of the reasons why I think initiatives like space solar power don't really have a, a good home in our government structure. They're kind of in the cracks between, you know, Department of Energy is investing a lot in terrestrial energy sources. They don't really do space things. NASA does space things, but they're not really focused on energy or metals or materials. And in our government, the Department of Interior, through the U.S. Geological Survey, does exploration and they keep track of mineral reserves and things like that petroleum reserves. But again, they don't really do space stuff. Uh, Department of Commerce, they're chartered with promoting commerce and regulating commerce in the U.S. They actually have an office of space commerce, but it has like five people in it. So there's really not, you know, within our U.S. government, there's really not a... And then how would, let's just say you hypothetically mined a bunch of, we'll just say gold again. How would you get that from wherever you mined it back to Earth. So at least in the near to midterm, I don't think bringing materials back to Earth, and there may be some exceptions, is really going to be economically feasible. It's just not going to pay. It's just too expensive to, to bring it down. And you look at what NASA paid to bring down one or two kilograms of material from an asteroid, you know, it's hard and it's expensive. So initially, space materials are going to be utilized in space. And they're going to be utilized to offset the high cost of launching things into space. Eventually, when costs come down, the, you know, there'll be a threshold where now it suddenly makes sense. You know, launching to an asteroid, mining it, coming back is now cheap enough that 
it makes sense to bring it back to Earth. So basically, it sounds like step one is turn the moon into a gas station. Step two might be try to create solar power or solar and beam that back to Earth. But in terms of actually mining and bringing metals and minerals back to Earth, we're talking like a century away then or something like that. It may not be that long. Space solar power, to have grid-scale energy being beamed to Earth from space is certainly feasible within several decades. Like I said, the propellant economy in the next 10 to 20 years can be established, and then that lowers the cost of doing space solar power and lowers the cost of doing things on the lower surface. And now we're mining the moon for more than just propellant. We're mining it for metals and other materials that we can use for space solar power satellites. So there's a series of dominoes, that each one of which enables the next one to happen. And once you have large-scale space manufacturing, the cost of doing things in space now becomes a lot lower. You can build your satellites in space to go mine asteroids. And so now they're a lot cheaper. You're utilizing propellants mined in space to get to the asteroid and back. So that's now a lot cheaper. And so now the cost equation to bring things back to Earth suddenly becomes viable. It seems like then we have to still wait for some anti-gravity machine to really get to where the movies would project us in terms of bringing stuff down, going to Mars routinely. With these rockets, it's just too cost expensive. I I liked your analogy in one of your papers where you talked about going from, I think it was LA to DC, where basically it's like you have a car, then you have to have all the fuel for that trip. But then because you have so much fuel, you no longer can have a car. You have to basically have a a truck pull the trailer with the fuel. But then because you have so much fuel, now you need to get like a bigger truck, right? So just... Yeah, no, it's a snowball. Yeah, that's that's what we call the tyranny of the rocket equation. And, And it's under that tyranny that we've been operating since the beginning of the space age. And space resources basically eliminates all that. I envision a future where almost nothing except people is being launched into space. We're sending information into space via radio waves or laser beams or things like that, but light doesn't care about gravity. And all the mass that's in space has been found and processed in space. At that point, the tyranny of the rocket equation is out of the picture because we're not launching things out of Earth's gravity well anymore, except maybe people that want to go, because people that go into space may want to come home to visit, right? There's no place like Earth. Bezos says, if you've heard him give a talk, he talks about in the future we could zone Earth residential. And all manufacturing and all the dirty mining and manufacturing processes are happening in space. And it doesn't matter because space is is vast and nearly infinite. And as far as we can tell at this point in time, it's dead. You mentioned the movie Avatar. Mining in space, there aren't natives that are going to protest it because there are natives. Do you envision a future where Jeff Bezos is correct and we do have different divisions on Earth and stuff's going on and different planets or different moons. Everything down here is green. All the industry's gone. We have abundant, inexhaustible energy that's being beamed from space. You're not mining. You're not polluting. 
you're just living in abundance. I share that vision. When do we get to that vision? It's definitely a utopian vision right now. It is a utopian vision, but you can see the steps. We've talked about them in the last hour. You were chief scientist at United Launch Alliance for years. What are some exciting projects that you worked on? What are some of the most exciting things that keeps you motivated and working in this industry for so many years. It's everything we just talked about. I got interested in space resources when I was at ULA because we were developing rocket stages that could be refueled. One of the things that we promoted a lot was the whole idea of refueling as a way to break the tyranny of the rocket equation. <clears throat> you can start out doing like what SpaceX did, and I kind of think SpaceX is doing refueling a Starship because we talked about it first at ULA, but you can get some of the benefit of refueling by launching your propellant from Earth. It's not as dramatic as if you can find your propellant in space, but you do get benefit. And that's what SpaceX is taking advantage of. So we were developing upper stages that could be refueled. One very interesting time in my career was when we realized that we had to get rid of the Russian engine that is used on the Atlas vehicle. Um, Atlas uses the Russian RD-180 rocket engine. We selected that engine right at the end of the Cold War when we were being encouraged to go to Russia and gainfully employ their rocket scientists so that they didn't go sell their rocket technology to North Korea and Iran. So it was actually encouraged. I mean, this was during the Clinton administration. We were encouraged to go partner with the Russians. And it was a great partnership. But then... In 2014, I think it was, or, or maybe it was 2013, when Russia invaded Crimea, suddenly it was politically incorrect for us to have a Russian engine. And so I got a special assignment to go put together a team to figure out how to change the engine on the Atlas. And eventually we ended up partnering with Blue Origin and selecting their BE-4 engine. And that was a big public press release. I think it was in 2014. And that led to a new rocket being developed by United Launch Alliance called Vulcan. So Vulcan is kind of the next generation ULA product that I got started when I was still there. And it's hopefully on track, I think, to launch. It's been delayed a bit. They had some issues with their upper stage. And I think it's now probably 24 for the first launch of that rocket. But that was pretty exciting. My first real big claim to fame was developing the Atlas V rocket. I was the chief system engineer for that development. And that's been a, an amazing rocket. It's had closing in on 100 launches with zero failures. Been super successful. Launched a whole bunch of very prominent NASA missions, including both Perseverance and Curiosity, the rovers on Mars. The Pluto New Horizons mission was launched on Atlas, and then countless weather, military, commercial communication satellites. So it's been a been a good run. Yeah, it's quite impressive, George. So our guest today is Dr. George Sowers. And George, uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? It seems like I think you do some like consulting work and things like that now. Kind of don't do much of that. I, I have done a little bit of that, but... You can find me at the Colorado School of Mines, and you can learn about our graduate program. I'm a professor supporting the world's first and only graduate program in space resources, 
And you can check out our program at, I think it's at minds.space.edu. And what would be a final thought? It's really simple. And we've talked through the steps, but bringing space resources within the economic sphere of humans, you know, is the next great economic revolution. In history, you've had the agriculture revolution. We went from hunter-gatherers to having civilization through agriculture. And then the modern world was created by the industrial revolution when wealth and abundance of humans took an exponential turn upward and has created this modern, very wealthy world that we currently live in. Space resources is that next increment. By developing those, the future of humans is boundless. You can imagine in a complete end to scarcity and into poverty and in, into war and conflict because resources are nearly infinite. And that, that the future of humans is, is really, really bright. These days, we're bombarded with these pessimistic views of the future of humans. And my view is completely opposite of that. The, the future of humans could not be yeah, I, I agree with that. We've had a lot of guests on this podcast, including Dr. Marion Tupi, who wrote the book Super Abundance. But I like that book a lot. Oh, yeah. It's a great book. And I think he even mentions you make $15 an hour working at Walmart and you have a better lifestyle than a king or queen 300 years ago did. You got food at your disposal and you can jump on a flight and go to the Bahamas. or you know, like There's so many things that you could do that a king could only dream of only a few hundred years ago. Yeah, it's getting started, right? That keep going. I want to thank you for spending an hour with us today, especially at eight o'clock in the morning there in Colorado. No, it's been my pleasure. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.